Our story begins one second after midnight, January 1st, 1953. This is Times Square in the city of New York. It could be the Circle in Indianapolis or Carson City or the main dining room of the Brown Hotel in Louisville. The sounds are the same. For at this moment, at this starting out place, in the Earth's huge sweep around the sun, we're all haunted by the same ghost. We each pay tribute to the gods of the year that yet to be. One year ago, less a few days and a few hours, the year that lay ahead like life itself would be a blend of the huge and the insignificant. Things almost too big to comprehend, others small enough to be tucked away forever in the memory and cherished as part of what it was to have lived this year of grace, 1953. The United States entered 1954 in an uncertain position. Years of racial discrimination were coming to the forefront. In May, Brown versus the Board of Education would make racial segregation in schools illegal. By a -day miracle. The Korean War was over, but the communist Red Scare was reaching its height. Dwight D. Eisenhower was completing his first year as U.S. President. Elizabeth II was now Queen of England. Joseph Stalin was dead. So was Hank Williams, Maud Adams, Jim Thorpe, Herman Mankiewicz, Dooley Wilson, Robert Taft, Edwin Hubble, and Dylan Thomas. January 20 it was, a chilly, wind-battered day, made gay by the sun that splashed down on the mall and the thousand flags that seemed to fly from every rooftop in the city. It was noon or so when the big car rolled out of the driveway at the White House and turned up Pennsylvania Avenue toward the Capitol. President Truman and President-elect Eisenhower seated side by side for this brief instant of time. The one ready to perform his final official duty, the other moving toward his rendezvous with history. Meanwhile, radio achieved total saturation. 98% of homes had a radio set. There were still 19 million U.S. houses that could only be reached by radio. However, the four national networks continued a five-year downward trend in radio ad sales. Network radio gross revenue peaked in 1948 at just under $200 million. In 1953, it was down to $160 million. Procter & Gamble led the way with over $14 million spent, and 40 companies, including General Foods, Colgate-Palmolive, Liggett & Myers, Campbell Soups, S.C. Johnson, and Coca-Cola spent at least $1 million on radio advertising. General Eisenhower places his left hand on the Bibles, and the two men look deep into each other's eyes. While TV hadn't fully supplanted radio's total reach, it had decimated its primetime audience share. On CBS TV, I Love Lucy led all shows with a 58.8 rating. It was seen in over 15 million homes each Monday evening at 9 p.m. Opposite on the other medium, the Lux Radio Theater was heard in just under 3 million. And it turned out that as McCarthyism reached its zenith, Dramatic Radio would spend the first six months of 1954 facing widespread network cancellations. These were shows that just six years earlier were at the forefront of national consciousness. Radio's heyday was over. Tonight, we'll go back to January of 1954 and search for more answers. So help me God.
Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 123. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we open 2022 with a six-part miniseries on radio business and programming in 1954. We'll begin with January, in a radio half-season that was for many, the end of the line. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight, we'll also begin a new programming format on Breaking Walls. Going forward, I'll be releasing each episode in parts. These parts will be available on Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. Once all parts of an episode are released, I'll post the full-length episode for those who want to listen to it in the traditional format. For those listening on YouTube for the first time, please go to thewallbreakers.com for the full lineup of past episodes and feature length. Tonight's opening song is the Manhattan Strings version of Auld Lang Syne. It's a beautifully fitting rendition performed for the album The Holiday Sounds of the Manhattan Strings. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. You can also support these shows for as little as a dollar per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. Tomorrow on the NBC Radio Network, you'll hear three great special events when you set your dial to this station. First, from Pasadena, California, NBC's top newscasters will bring you a thrilling word picture of the fabulous Rose Parade. This is the traditional celebration of the roses, and you'll be there via the magic of radio when you listen tomorrow on NBC. Later, from the Cotton Bowl in Dallas, Texas, NBC will present a play-by-play description of the Alabama Rice football game. This 18th renewal of the Dallas Classic will put Alabama's Southwestern Conference champions against Rice Institute's co-champions of the Southwest. And then you'll want to stay tuned as NBC will return once again to Pasadena, California for the Rose Bowl Football Classic. Tomorrow, you'll hear an evenly matched game between the Bruins of UCLA and the Spartans of Michigan State College as they battle for the honors of the Big Ten and the Pacific Coast Conference. Keep your dial set to NBC tomorrow for the finest New Year's Day sports coverage. Well, McGee, that winds up another year. 1953 is just about finished. Yeah, and me too. Hey, I wonder what happened to all the things I was going to do in 1953. <laughs> I don't know, but that's a familiar question. Remember, I was going to give up smoking, be more polite to people, read some good books and all stuff like that there. I remember. Well, it's sure great to have a whole, fresh, brand new year to do them things in. <laughs> Remind me, will you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy, Happy New Year!
NBC has brought you the Fibber McGee and Molly program transcribed with Bill Thompson as Mr. Wimple and Arthur Q. Bryan as Dr. Gamble. Also heard tonight were Peter Leeds as the master of ceremonies, Myra Marsh as Mrs. Spradley, and Jack Crucian as the man backstage. This is John Wall inviting you to be with us again tomorrow night for another visit with Fibber McGee and Molly. Tonight, hear the all-night parade of bands on the NBC Radio Network. Sometimes ideas come out of news stories that you've read or out of... The first story I ever did, Don had hired me. I was to come in on... Tuesday with some story ideas, and I sat in our little house over on Lost Palmas, just sweating blood because I wasn't didn't I was overwhelmed by the opportunity and I didn't nothing was happening much and uh, I had a few ideas I didn't care too much for them and I was having a cup of coffee late at night in the kitchen and I picked up a bottle of cream to put some in the coffee and it said on the bottle Ador Dairy Farms invites you to visit our dairy. And it just struck me that that would be a funny notion for Fibber and Molly to take up that invitation off their milk bottle and go visit the dairy. The finish we had for the show, I had for the show, was that that had been on their milk bottle for 20 years and nobody had ever come to see them. Arthur Q. Bryan, who had played Major Hoople that I had been writing, mm -hmm. they hired him to play the president of the dairy, and he just broke down and cried when they came because all these years nobody uh -huh. had ever come to see the dairy. Well, that was how the first idea came to me. One, I remember we saw a picture in Life or Time, perhaps, of a woman who uh, tried to get on a bus with an armful of packages at Christmas Rush or something, and the bus driver closed the door in her face because the bus was full. And she got furious and went around quickly and stood in front of the bus and wouldn't let it move until they let her on. It developed into a thing between the woman and the bus driver that went on for about an hour. Barred that, used mm -hmm. for fibber. He went out and stood in front of the bus, and we rallied the merchants with him and people on both sides, and the merchants brought a chair out for him to sit on, and they were bringing him ice cream, and he was loving it. When you get to know the characters well, you know how they react to things and exactly what Fibber mm. would do in a situation. And he did the very logical thing for him. He made a big thing out of not being allowed on the bus, and, and it took all afternoon while they fought back and forth. They called the mayor and everybody to come and try to settle the argument. When the driver finally agreed to let Fibber on the bus, he discovered that it wasn't his bus after all, which was typically Fibber, <laughs> you see. It was the wrong bus. He said, get that thing out of here, bud. I've been waiting here long enough. <laughs> In the August 17, 1953 issue of Broadcasting Magazine, NBC's VP of Operating, Ted Cott, said that if TV killed off the conversation, NBC Radio is going to revive it. Their motto was, what's good in radio is good for radio. The network was in the development stage for 28 new programs and 13 additional news segments. There would be quiz shows, a midnight column, a program about the NBC chimes, and a radio version of the Sunday newspaper called Weekend. They'd also give more attention to shows of local importance, like the Grand Ole Opry, 
broadcast from the Ryman Auditorium over WSM in Nashville. NBC's marketing department touted the network as the headquarters for new ideas. Advertisers bought commercial spots rather than sponsoring each show. NBC called it the tandem plan. In their fall lineup, programming themes would change nightly. Mondays would be music, Tuesdays adventure, Fridays comedy. Jimmy Stewart would debut in The Six Shooter, and Frank Sinatra would star in Rocky Fortune. And after 18 years as a weekly show, Fibber McGee and Molly would air five nights per week for 15 minutes. It was produced and directed by Max Hutto and written by Phil Leslie. Oh, and, and uh, create the idea, yeah, the, the gag. Do, do really. the plot, which yeah. was not, you know, Fibber and Molly didn't require much of a plot, uh -huh. but it needed a story with a finish of some kind mm -hmm. to hang the, hang the door knocks on that people would come in. I started the first few weeks just bringing Don's story ideas, sitting in, then I began to write a little bit for him. And then after a few months, my routine was that I would write a whole show. We would get together out at the Jordan's house, Pepper and Molly's house, on Saturday afternoon. We would all read the script, read it aloud. Don would read all the parts. He'd read the old-timer and read Doc Gamble and Mary Latrivia and Wallace Wimple. And Mary and Jim would read their own roles, and I would sit and sweat, you know, wondering how good it was. Then Don would rewrite it over the weekend on Sunday, Saturday night and Sunday, as much as he thought it needed, which was a lot in the beginning. Then Tuesday we'd rehearse, or Monday we'd, we'd do a reading, and Don would make cuts and polishes, and Tuesday we'd rehearse all day and do the show. Well, after about a year and a half, two years of that perhaps, Don felt that I was writing well enough for the show that we could break it half in two. So we'd get mm -hmm. the story set with Marion and Jim on a Tuesday afternoon before we did tonight's show. We'd get next week's story set, mm -hmm. they'd agree on it. Then Don and I would break it half in two, and I would write the first half, and he'd write the second half, and the next week we'd do it the other way around. And then on Sunday or later on Monday, Don and I would get together, put the show together, and we'd go into rehearsal with it. Packaged with Second Chance and It Pays to Be Married, NBC charged just under $3,000 for a minute of sponsorship. It was touted in advertisements as the lowest cost for network time in history. The show debuted in the new format on October 5, 1953. It found sponsorship in January of 1954, reaching 2 million homes per evening. On New Year's Day, Fibber and Molly attempted to enjoy a quiet evening at home. The Fibber, McGee, and Molly Show. Weekday at this time, NBC brings you Fibber McGee and Molly transcribed. The show is written by Phil Leslie and Ralph Goodman and directed by Max Hutto. We'll join Fibber and Molly in just a moment. Within the next 20 seconds, a fire will break out somewhere in the United States. Lives may be lost, property damaged, homes or buildings destroyed. This is something that's very important. We learned that a long time ago with the Smith family. Uh -huh. You painted a picture the same as if you were doing it in a motion picture or doing it on a stage for people to see. You painted that picture so the people could see what they were laughing at. That was the trick. We had a, an expression that we that, that don't get the picture. If you, don't, if you don't make a picture, you're not going anywhere. This is the way we thought about it anyway. Don't smoke in bed or discard lighted cigarettes carelessly. 
Rule two, clean out old newspapers, magazines, and other inflammable debris. Rule three, promptly repair defective wiring as soon as you notice it. Fires won't wait until tomorrow. Rule four, use only those cleaning fluids which will not burn. And last but not least, be careful with matches. Remember, it doesn't pay to gamble with fire. The odds are against you every time. The Wistful Vista Elks and their ladies ushered in the new year in fine style last night with dancing, food, and a big vaudeville show. We bring you now one of the stars of that show and his wife spending a quiet New Year's Day at home. And I tell you, dearie, when you rolled out there on that stage on that one-wheeled bicycle playing your mandolin, they applauded so hard I thought the roof was going to fall in. Yeah. When you rolled up to the edge of the orchestra pit and couldn't get the bicycle stopped, I thought you were going to fall in. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> if I hadn't leapt off the cycle and took a bow right quick, I'd have... I'll get it. 79 Wistful Vista, Molly McGee speaking. Oh, Happy New Year to you, too, Herb. Yeah, it was quite an evening, wasn't it? Yes, he's here, Herb, for you again. You certainly made a hit last night. Well, Natch, an old showman like me. Bring the phone over here, will you, please? You're standing up, and I'm tired. Yes, dearie. You want me to hold it to your ear, or can you manage that part yourself? No, I can hold it. Hello. Yeah, Herb. Well, I'm glad you like it, boy. Oh, it's just a little thing I whipped up after I watched a couple of acts and figured the show could stand a little class. You mean after you heard Dr. Gamble and Mr. Wimble go out there and tell all those horrible jokes you were planning to tell yourself? Yeah, well, he's a doctor, not an actor, Herb. He did us a great favor when he stole those jokes of yours. What'd you say, Herb? Oh, the finale? You mean while I was playing the Stars and Stripes forever? Oh, I, I couldn't tell you how I did that, Herb. That, that, that's a trade secret. How you did what, Derry? Just a minute, Herb. You know, when I closed with the Stars and Stripes Forever on the mandolin, Herb wants to know how I got them little American flags to come out of my ears on the last chorus. How did you do that? I've never been able to figure that What'd out. What'd you say, Herb? Oh, a friend of yours was there. Television? Well, now, tell him I appreciate the offer, Herb, but I'm too busy. What, dearie? What? what, what what's this about television? A friend of Herb's was there last night and saw me do my act. Yeah, yes. Well, he just bought a new television, and he wanted to know if I'd like to come over with Herb and watch the Rose Bowl game. Oh, but I'm too busy. dear. Yeah, Herb. Oh, I got a million things to do around the house today. Well, tell him thanks. Maybe some other time. Yeah, goodbye. Nice guy, that Herb. That's the tenth call you've had today. Goodness, I'm proud of you, sweetheart. Well, thanks, Tootsie. Tell me, how did you get those little flags to come out of your ears, anyhow? I'm sorry, Molly, but me and old Fred Nittany, the guy that him and me invented that whole routine, we made a solemn pact not to divulge any of the secrets of our act until 25 years after our death. <laughs> <laughs> well, forgive me for asking. I had no idea it was so involved. Ah, that's okay. Oh, boy, I'm tired. We sure had fun last night, didn't we? Must have been 1 o'clock when we got home. One fifteen. I think that was the best affair the Elks Club ever had. Of course, the show was wonderful, especially your part. Oh, well. And the dance afterwards. Honestly, I never danced so much in my life. Say, did you see Dr. Gamble out there cutting a rug with Miss Callahan? Yeah, that poor girl looks scared to death. <laughs> you know, when old Fatso starts jitterbugging, he looks like a dump truck with busted brakes. <laughs> oh, I danced with him myself, you know. I thought the doctor was pretty graceful. Graceful? <laughs> like a hamstrung moose, he's graceful. Well, he... say, weren't Teeny and the old-timer cute as the old year and the new year, though? Yeah. At midnight there, when they did yeah, that. Yeah, and the way Teeny kicked and hollered when her folks tried to get her to go home and go to bed. 
They had to chase her all over the Elks Club. <laughs> well, if you hadn't promised to go along with them and tell her a bedtime story, I don't think they'd have ever gotten her down off of that balcony. <laughs> if that's what the new year is going to be like, give me back the old. Well, he was pretty frisky, too. The old-timer, I mean. Did you see him doing the tango? He was dancing with three gals at once. <laughs> I bet he's tired today. He really did overdo it. Somebody should have stopped him. Hmm. Did you ever stop a tornado? All you can do is run for cover till it wears itself out. Speaking of being wore out, I'm not getting up from this chair for a week. I feel like my mainspring is busted. If we were smart, we'd have come on home to bed after Teeny's house instead of going back to the dance. She's probably feeling bright and chipper this morning herself. Yeah, probably woke her folks up at daybreak banging on that drum she got for Christmas and hollering for me. Come in. Well, McGee, look who's at the door with a snowball in one hand and a brand new sled in the other. Teeny? No. Hello there, kids. Oh. Hey, Johnny, how about coming out and doing a couple of belly flops down Oak Street Hill? We can use my sled. Oh, What's the matter with him, daughter? Well, we were a little tired from last night. What'd you do? Go night clubbing after the Elks Club shindig broke up? Oh, no. Why didn't you tell me? I'd have went with you, kids. I was just getting wound up when the musicians quit and went home. Oh. What music? What fun? What girls? What time is it? I gotta go and meet Teeny and the kids. They're waiting for me at the top of the hill. <laughs> so long, kids. Happy New Year. What the heck was that? I think that was last night's tornado that hasn't worn itself out yet. <laughs> I don't know where he gets his pep because at his age... Back to West Vista in a minute. The tradition of religious freedom and of religious worship in America goes back to the very founding of our country. The cornerstone of our Declaration of Independence is the statement that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. The show, uh, as Fibber McGee and Molly, as a half-hour radio show, went off the air in about 1954, didn't 53 it? 53 or 54, I feel. And then we did a 15-minute show across the board for one year, and then we did monitor for about three years. Yeah. In fact, when Marion became ill in 1960, in February, this cancer was discovered, and we were just, uh, the contract was made out for three more years of Monitor at that time. We never finished signing it. Well, that was one of the great losses to radio, certainly. But you were with NBC for all those years, weren't you, Jim? We were with NBC for over 30 years. Church or synagogue of your choice. Light their life with faith. Bring them to worship this week. Yeah, Watson, we had a swell time. Horse Watson, kiddo. Yeah, great. Be sure and tell him what a nice job he did as MC last night. What'd you say, horse? My act. Oh, yeah, well, I'm glad you liked it, horse. Just a little something I whipped up before curtain time. Got a million routines, of course, I have. Tell him what a nice job he did as MC. Yeah, I and Fred Nittany, the guy that him and me had us an act together from Starved Rock, Illinois, together in Vaudeville. We played all the top spots. Jerry, with... don't forget to tell him what a good MC he yeah, was. Yeah, that was I and Fred's old finale I finished with. Used to play my mandolin sitting on old Fred's shoulders while he rode the unicycle. What'd you say? The flags that come out of my ears? Oh, dear. Here we go again. Oh, I'm sorry, horse. I'd like to tell you, but that's a trade secret. Can't give out any information on that on account of a pact I made with old Fred. Yeah, well, I'm glad you liked it, though. McGee, tell him what a good MC. Uh, just a minute, Watson. What's the matter, Molly? What is it? I said tell Mr. Watson what a fine job he did arranging the show and being the master of ceremonies. He was the stage manager and everything, you know. I think he'd like a little appreciation. Oh. Say, horse, 
Before I hang up, I just wanted to say you did a good job yourself last night, too, though. Yeah, that's okay. Good. I think you done fine, considering that you got no show business background like I have, and naturally you didn't know your foots from your fly loft. I mean, like routining the show, you know. No real showman would ever put two musical acts together like that, but what the heck. You take a guy that he's a shoe clerk like you are and put him running a vaudeville show, and when you look at it that way, I think you did pretty good. Pretty darn good, boy. Yeah, because... Hello? Hello, horse. Hello? Hmm. Guess that flattery kind of embarrassed him. He hung up. Well, you did spread it on a little thick. Well, he deserved it. He worked pretty hard. Hey, say, where's today's paper? Have you seen it? Yes, it just came a while ago. I'll get it. Watch the Christmas tree. Yeah. Oh, dear. Only two ornaments fell this time. We'll have to start thinking about taking this thing down soon. The needles are beginning to Plenty fall. of time for that, Molly. Gee whiz, we did a lot of work decorating that tree. Okay, okay. Here's the paper. Thanks. Hey, look at that, will you, kiddo? Sure looks funny. Not a picture of you with those American flags coming out of your ears while you play. No, the... no, I mean this date up here. January 1st, 1954. Look at that four. Doesn't it look funny? <laughs> it sure does. Yes, this is the first day of the new year. You make it sound like the new scoop of the century. Ah, yes, a new day dawns. A new clean slate lies ahead of us, unmarked and unblemished. And by this time next year, thereupon will be written the future of our spinning universe in bold, clear letters. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm thirsty. <laughs> you got a glass of root beer? There's some in the icebox. See who it is, Molly. I'm so tired, I Come can... in. Well, Dr. Gamble. Hello, my dear. Hi, Doc. Hi. Too bad you didn't get here sooner. You just missed a bit of homespun philosophy that would have spun you around and sent you home talking to yourself. Well, if he's in a philosophical mood, maybe I better not stay. He's bad enough when he's... You still... ought to wonder whether to come into my house or not, you big chiseler, you joke stealer. Me? I don't know what you mean. Sit down, doctor. Look at that innocent look on that putty puss of his, Molly. <laughs> doctor, I've been wounded deeply. To think that you, my nearest, dearest, and fattest friend, would steal my act at the Elks Club. Steal ten of my best jokes so that you and Wimple could go out there and tell them before I got a chance to. So I had to do a whole new act. I don't know how to thank you, Doctor. Well, believe me, kids, I learned my lesson. When Whipple walked out there and I asked him where he was going with those Coca-Colas and he said he was taking the case to court, <laughs> I thought they'd kill us. <laughs> <laughs> and when he came back with his step letter and said he was taking the case to a higher court, they should have. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I've learned that crime doesn't pay. Ah, oh, you guys just didn't do them right, Doc. You gotta be actors, boy, that's all. Now you take me and old Fred Nittany. We used to get laughs with that stuff all the time. In 1923, maybe, but this is 1953. 54, Molly. A new year is here. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's hard to get used to it. 365 new days. Yeah. I wonder what this new year is going to bring us. Good? Bad? What? Well, let's hope it brings peace and happiness. Let's hope that this year all the people of the world can come to a better understanding of each other's problems. Yes. Because if this new year can bring to all of us a new faith in the future, a new tolerance for our fellow man, and a little more love for each other... This could be the greatest new year of our lives. Fibber and Molly will be right back. How about it? Have you broken any New Year's resolutions yet? Well, if you haven't, don't worry about it. There are still 364 days left in 1954. Plenty of time to shatter all those resolutions you've been badgered into making for the new year. Of course, we hope you can be the exception and keep all your resolutions this year. 
especially if you have resolved to work more enjoyment into your life in 1954. One way we'd like to help out with such a resolution as that is to send along to you the very finest of all radio entertainment on the NBC radio network. During 1953, NBC spent millions of dollars to bring you an improved program schedule. And during 1954, we will continue to bring you the finest of the available radio programs. So accept our invitation to be our guests whenever you want wonderful radio entertainment throughout this new year, whether it be comedy, music, adventure, news, or drama. Just set your dial to the spot where you hear the familiar three NBC chimes, your invitation to the best in listening. Ladies and gentlemen, Molly and I would like to wish all of you a very happy new year. Good night. Good night, all. NBC has brought you the Fibber, McGee, and Molly program, transcribed with Bill Thompson as the old-timer and Arthur Q. Bryan as Dr. Gamble. This is John Wall inviting you to be with us again next Monday night for another visit with Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Now laugh with Can You Top This on the NBC Radio Network. fall. Fibber and Molly sold all its commercial spots. The network found success selling short-term sponsorship centered around either holidays or corporate events. NBC would continue to air Fibber, McGee, and Molly in serial format until March 23, 1956. After that, Jim and Marion joined NBC's Monitor in short vignettes. often that a writer, or any man, is given an opportunity to destroy a figure he's always hated, a character that all his life has cluttered his landscape like a slum. And to be able to do so, and get paid for it to boot, is to be doubly blessed. My hated figure is the western hero who rides along, thumping his guitar, nasally singing a synthetic ballad, and looking for all the world like a fugitive from a cheap circus. I spit in his milk, and he'll have to go elsewhere to find somebody to pour the lead for his golden bullets. Now, the best way to destroy something bad is to write it down with something better. And I've got a guy I think outclasses any of these phony big hats. His name's Matt Dillon, and his hair is probably red if he's got any left. He'd be handsomer than he is if he had better manners. But life and his enemies have left him looking a little beat up. And I suppose, having seen his mother back about 1840, struggling to take a bath in a wooden washtub without fully undressing, left his soul a little warped. Anyway, there'd have to be something wrong with him or he wouldn't have 
hired on as a United States Marshal in the heyday of Dodge City, Kansas. Dodge at that time was the wildest town in America, and it was populated by men just as warped and more so than Matt Dillon. Gunsmoke, brought to you tonight by Plymouth, with an invitation for you to visit a Plymouth dealer's tomorrow. Meet the new Plymouth and enter the big $25,000 contest. When Gunsmoke was sponsored for a single broadcast on November 21st, 1952 by the Chrysler Plymouth Corporation, the show drew a good rating against ABC's This Is Your FBI and was heard by roughly 8 million people. Director Norman MacDonald remembered the cast, which starred Bill Conrad, Parley Bayer, Howard McNear, and Georgia Ellis. One of the mainstays, one of the strong right arms that I had was uh, Bill Conrad. Parley Bear would be an example of a man who, I remember a show that Parl played the lead on, Second Class Passenger, a, a funny kind of lost little man who gets into terrible difficulties in Algiers or Morocco or wherever it was, and Parley was just beautiful. On the other hand, uh, Parley would play a, a little bit of a school teacher or a little bit of a country lawyer or doctor. The same with Oh, somebody like Howard McNair or a young ingenue, uh, Georgia Ellis. If I remember correctly, she was the girlfriend of Will Rogers Jr. on a program called Rogers of the Gazette. After 18 months on the air on October 3, 1953, the critically acclaimed show got sponsorship from General Foods Post Toasties. Post Toasties, the heap good cornflakes, is proud to present Gunsmoke. the sponsorship ended 13 weeks later on December 26th. The show continued to air, sustained by CBS on Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. The next week, on January 2nd, 1954, Gunsmoke broadcast an episode called Stage Holdup. City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. trip from Hayes City to Dodge was long enough horseback, but by stagecoach, it seemed endless. There were only two passengers besides me, and after the first hour on the road, we stopped talking. Just sat there in silence, waiting for the ride to be over. I'd been up late the last few nights, so I 
braced myself into one corner of the coach and fell asleep. I vaguely remember the stage pulling to a stop and somebody shouting. But I came fully awake when the door was jerked open and a man behind a bandana stuck a shotgun in my face. Get out of the coach. Hands in front of you. Uh, It'll be a pleasure to blast you open. <laughs> All right. Take his gun, Charlie. Yeah. Now, stand over there with the driver. You two next. Now get on out and don't try nothing. How come you didn't start shooting when they stopped me, Marshal? Well, I was sound asleep, Hank. Well, I'm sure glad of that. If we put up a fight, that fellow with a shotgun would have blowed me clean off the seat. Yeah. Yeah. How many of them are there? Just these two? That's all I've seen. Could be somebody with a rifle hiding in that clump of elder over there. Could be... Ah, That'll learn him, Charlie. Hey, look. He killed him, Marshal. The man was a fool to try that. Go get the box down, Charlie. Take this one to help you. I'll keep an eye on these two here. Oh, you're a marshal, huh? I am. Well, that greenhorn got himself killed. He shouldn't have tried to shoot Charlie. No, he shouldn't. Not with a little derringer. Charlie got hit. Right in the arm. Yeah, I saw it. I just don't want nobody chasing us for murder. Under the circumstances, it was murder. It was, huh? Well... Then the only thing to do is shoot the whole bunch of you and have done with it. No, you can't do that. Mister, I got a wife and two kids in Dodge. What I hear, Dodge ain't a very good place to raise a family anyway. Look, you're in enough trouble already. Besides, you didn't kill that man. Your partner did. Yeah, that's right. It's Charlie they'll be after. How much money is there in that box, driver? Yeah, I don't know. They never tell me. We'll find out. He's got it open now. Load it in them saddlebags, Charlie. I got an idea. You're new at this game. Look, if a man was holding a shotgun on me and I was unarmed, I wouldn't have no ideas about nothing, Marshal. You always carry a shotgun, mister? Why? We might meet sometime when you don't have one. You're going to make me shoot you yet. Hey, look, your partner's ready to go. Okay. Uh, Don't you make a move till we're out of sight. We'll ride back and kill every one of you. You understand? I guess there's nothing we can do but stand here. That's all, Hank. For right now, anyway. What'd you do, Kitty? Burn your mouth again? Oh, darn it, yes. What do you mean again? Well, it seems like you always do if the coffee's hot enough. 
Thanks for the sympathy. <laughs> as much as you gave me about the stage holdup the other day. All I said was I'm glad you were asleep. You're a lot safer that way. Now, being safe isn't exactly my main goal, Kitty. Yeah, I know. How much money was there, Matt? Two thousand dollars. You'd think they'd have paid a man to ride shotgun. Have you any idea who did it? No, they were both masked. I hear Wells Fargo put up a reward for him. Yeah, there's a thousand dollars for the one who killed the passenger, dead or alive. They must want him real bad. That's not good for business. People getting murdered. What about the other one? Uh, Three hundred for his capture. And uh, if you recover the stolen money, Kitty, well, they'll give you half of it. If I found that money, they'd give me all of it. <laughs> You'll end up in jail yet. Well, the Texas Trail isn't far from being a jail. For me, anyway. I gotta get back there pretty soon, Matt. Sure. Hey, you. Waiter. Come here and take this money or I'll throw it at you. Another gentleman in town. Uh, Kitty, I, huh? I don't want to turn around. What does he look like? Well, I, I think it's the one with the black beard You heard me, waiter. Get over here before I bust your neck. That's the one, all right. Is there anybody with him? No. He's alone. And he's leaving now. Oh, good. No, no, don't huh? stare at him. I don't want him to see me. Well, he's not even looking this way. He's going out the door, Matt. Uh, all right. Huh? Come on. I want to follow him. Okay. Is that him ahead of us there? The big man, yeah. Who is he, Matt? I'm not sure. But he sounds an awful lot like somebody I want. You gonna arrest him? No, not till I'm sure. Maybe not even then. Look, he's going up to docks. Yeah, so he is. Uh, Kitty, I'll leave you here. Okay. Thanks for the supper, Matt. Sure, anytime. Tomorrow? Well, I might be real busy tomorrow. I figured that. So long, Matt. Goodbye, Kitty. to me. Uh, how'd he do it? Well, he, he just tore it on some wire. Well, why didn't you bring him into town? It might be gangrene. Is that bad? Bad. Well, he could lose the arm or even die. Where is he anyway? Uh, on the prairie. The camp. Ain't there uh, some medicine or something I could take back with me, Doc? Oh, oh. Oh, hello, Matt. Good evening, Doc. Yeah. Uh, oh, go, go right ahead. I... I just came up for a smoke. Oh, sure. Sit down. Sit down, Matt. Yeah. Ah, thanks. Now, look, mister. There isn't a medicine in the world. Never mind. But I... I'm telling you... Forget it. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Everything's okay. Yes. You better not wait too long. I'm warning you. I won't. We'll take care of everything tomorrow. So long. Ah, that man's crazy. That's what... No, he's not crazy, Doc. No, you should have heard him. I did. What do you mean you did? I was outside the door, Doc. Well, he's going under the Oliferganza. I guess he isn't too worried. What's this all about, Matt? Uh, Doc, I'll explain it to you later. Right now, i got to find Chester. Oh, Chester? Yes, he's down in the office. I just left him. Oh, good. I sure hope he's had a lot of sleep lately. What's that? He's going to be pretty busy tonight. I'll see you later, Doc.
Well, you follow him all night, Chester? Oh, Mr. Dillon, I'm about ready to drop. Everything's getting hazy. Where is he? In the restaurant there? Yes, sir, that's where he went. He gambled the entire night. I swear I don't know how he stays awake. I can't hardly keep my eyes open. Oh, rub a rouser or tobacco juice on him, Chester. That'll help. Oh, my goodness. He just come out the door. Yeah, he's seen us. Stand steady. Yes, sir. Marshal, I, uh, I got a complaint. Now, is that so? It sure is. I had an idea this man's tracking me all night had something to do with you. Oh, how'd you know I was following you? Mister, you might as well have been wearing snowshoes with cowbells tied on them. Now, that's not true. That's a doggone Never mind, Chester, I... never mind. What is your complaint, mister? Well, you... Can't a decent citizen ride into the Dodge and do a little gambling without being haunted by your man here? Well, that depends on how decent the citizen really is. What name do you go by, anyway? My own. Jermo. Jermo? Is that all there is to it? That's all. Yeah. Well, Jermo, I just didn't want you to leave town without my knowing about it. Why not? I ain't done nothing. Well, Doc told me about your partner. The one who tore his arm on some wire. What about him? Well, I'm curious to see if you're going to take care of him, that's all. Well, of course I am. He'll die if you don't hurry. Well, I... I'm going after him. When? Well, it's no business of yours when. And anybody following me is likely to run into trouble. From a shotgun, Chairman? I don't use a shotgun, Marshal. Your partner's dying, Jermo. You're wasting time. And he's dying. He's my partner, not yours. I'll take care of him. Sure. Sure, Jermo. But you better hurry. It would take Jimmy Stewart's aversion to Liggett and Meyer's tobacco to land Gunsmoke its big sponsor. They wanted to sponsor the six-shooter. Stewart declined, fearful of what a tobacco brand might do to his wholesome image. The six-shooter went off the air, while Liggett and Myers sponsored Gunsmoke, beginning with the July 5, 1954 episode. By 1956, Gunsmoke was the top-rated show on radio. These facts add up to the better we produce, the better we live. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, 
as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. We started our show, matter of fact, it was called Pull Over Neighbor, mm-hmm. and it was on the coast, and it started in June 5th, 1938, here on the Pacific Coast on NBC, and Edward's show started in 1940, Coast to Coast. Mm-hmm. So we started two years earlier, but he was on Coast to Coast before, and ah. we didn't use the title People Are Funny until 1942. So Art Baker was the uh-huh. MC for Full Over Neighbor for two and a half years. Then he was the MC for All Aboard for six months. And then the show was off the air and couldn't sell it. But <clears throat> there was an advertising club luncheon, oh, somewhere in 1940, I guess it was. And I was sitting down at the table at the Biltmore Hotel and... Uh, there were some pretty important executives around there, the president of the uh, Richfield Oil Company and the head of a bank and so forth in the, mm-hmm. one of the front tables. And I was looking at them, and they were all drawing pictures on the table, doodling. You know, one draws sailor, and one draws stars, and one draws some wheat, a tree. And the man on the stage was making a pretty dull speech, you know. He was, mm-hmm. you know, was just talking there. And so I wrote down a comment about what was going on. I wrote, people are funny. Just the phrase, people are uh-huh. funny as a comment. I made it lots of letters and big thick letters, you know, made it look like the 20th Century Fox, you know, uh, the, the, the <laughs> logo. And I thought, well, there's a theme for a program, human nature, proving that people are funny. People Are Funny debuted on April 10, 1942 on NBC. It was created by game show maven John Goodell. He was a jack of all trades who'd spent time as a WPA ditch digger, a traveling salesman, and a collector of his own rejection slips. About a year went by, and I read in the paper in March 1942, that's right after the war started, the Daily Variety had a front-page story saying that the government gave the Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company one week to get a program off the air, and not even one more broadcast, because it was called Captain Flag and Sergeant Quirk, and that's a funny show, and they did not, during wartime, want to show or depict army officers fraternizing with enlisted men. Well, I'd been writing letters to everybody, and so I took this yellow sheet of paper and wrote, I have the answer to your problem, and sent it to the man's name of the agency, Russell uh, Tom Wallace. The Russell Seeds Agency in Chicago was mentioned in the article Mm -hmm. as being involved. I didn't feel I could afford to send a telegram because I sent out so many letters I saying I have the answer to your problem that I just sent letters, you know. So apparently they did have a quick problem, so they sent a wire back, what is it? And I sent them the record. And they got it on Wednesday. They said, how much do you want for it? And I said, we want $5,000 a week. And they said, we'll offer you $750. And I said, well, there's some that your rock top? <laughs> and and uh, we argued a bit and ended up at $750 for four weeks. And we went on two days later. You see, we had to go on that Friday. We didn't see any of the people back east. They had live radio time coming Ready up Friday go, at yeah. 6 o'clock yeah. on NBC and what's going to fill it. So they had this high-class $750 program called hmm. The People Are Funny. It was fair. 
Well, did you do that now with two Both MCs. MCs. Both MCs. By the fall of 1943, Goodell had negotiated a large raise and made Art Linkletter the sole MC. In those days, our prizes were very small. The uh, power production was almost nothing, and it was exciting. It was experimentation. What'll work, what won't work. And the shows evolved naturally from the simple questions and answers of who are you and where are you from and what are you doing to can you spell, do you know uh, who was buried in Grant's tomb, <laughs> and other kinds of questions. And then the first real audience participation stunt show was John Goodell and myself originating People Are Funny at about the same time that Ralph Edwards came up with a similar kind of a show called Truth or Consequences. People Are Funny became a Friday night staple throughout the 1940s. In addition, Goodell would create House Party and You Bet Your Life. How much of the People Are Funny and House Party shows were actually scripted? Or were they outlined, outlines perhaps? Or? Just the material I needed, for instance, to know uh, where we were going and what the prizes were going to be and what the real gist of the show was, whether it was uh, sending a person on a wild goose chase somewhere or dressing him up and putting him into a situation or inciting a fight in the audience between an actor and then getting witnesses who were just seated around there at random and what they saw and what really happened. Whatever it was, I just had the uh, outline and we'd talk it through and since I was also a writer, an associate producer on the show. I knew the show thoroughly by the time I walked out there. By January of 1954, People Are Funny was airing on CBS Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. for Mars Candy. With a rating of 8.4, it was radio's top-rated show. This is audio from the January 5th episode. Who's the better loser, a man or a woman? It all depends on what they lose on People Are Funny. Yes, transcribed from Hollywood, John Goodell's production of People Are Funny, brought to you by Forever Yours and Milky Way Candy Bars, both quality bars made famous by Mars. And now here's radio's top master of ceremonies, Art Linkletter. Hello there, everybody. Well, here it is, a brand new year, our first broadcast of the new year. And guess what? I've made a resolution to be kind, courteous, and considerate to every contestant on People Are Funny through the whole year. Well, Roy Rowan, who's first to prove that I can't keep a resolution? Mr. Robert Jeffrey from Meriden, Connecticut. Meet Art Linkletter. How do you do, Mr. Jeffrey? How do you do, Mr. Linkletter? Did he say Meriden, Connecticut? That's right, Meriden. Well, that's the magic word. You win a big box of dark chocolate goodness, 24 forever yours candy bars. What do you do back there? I work for International Silver Company. You're married, man, aren't you? Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. You know, we give away some nice prizes on this show. Yes, I know you do. How would you like to win a 1954 Hudson Jet with Hudson's instant action superinduction engine? Yeah, I would. Uh-huh. Well, Mr. Jeffrey, I'm happy to be able to tell you that you are the only person who can't win it. <laughs> because this one's an outside stunt for our listeners only. Look at that. Only one minute of the broadcast, and I've already broken my resolution to be kind to contestants. Well, anyway, it's better to give than receive. Don't you think so? Yes, I do. I hope you believe that. Because, Mr. Jeffrey, your stunt tonight is to make somebody happy by giving them a gift. 
Now, this is what's going to happen. You're going to leave CBS and be driven out into Hollywood to a residential neighborhood. You're going to pick out any house. That's up to you. You just say, that one right there. We stop the car and you get out and you walk up. Be sure you notice the number of the street and everything because when somebody answers the door, you tell them that you live at the same number, two blocks over, and that you got a Christmas present, you unwrapped it, and then you saw by the card inside that it was not for you and that you were bringing it over to them. You got that? Yes, I've got that. All right, now, then you come over and you hand the person this beautiful antique lamp like this. Here, take it. You dropped it. <laughs> you dropped it. Yeah, I dropped it, didn't I? Yes, you did. This is what we want you to do, see? I have some more lamps, like oh, this one. Well, now, you're, you're going to have them in the back of the car. And you're going to take one of the lamps at a time. And you're going to go up to these doors, see? And you're going to say what I told you, that you've got the present. And as they reach out for the lamp, you drop it, just like I did. And it smashes into bits right on the porch in front of them. In other words, there are two basic uh, emotions inside the mind of this person at the door. They're happy and grateful to you for being honest enough to bring their present over, and then they're madder and heck because you just busted it in front of them. Now, the question is, will they bust you? I think this is going to be an interesting experiment. We want you to take down, as long as you last, the, the various comments and the reactions of what they do. And then come back and report on how the people reacted when the late Christmas present arrived. Say goodbye to them, audience. <laughs> Who's next, Roy? Mr. and Mrs. George Cannon from Fairbanks, Alaska. Art, but they're waiting off stage. Oh, yes, they're the newlyweds. And down through the last 13 years, some of our very finest guests on this program have been newlyweds. You know why? Newlyweds are a little more self-conscious, a little more easily embarrassed, a little more nervous than anybody else. Now, what we're going to find out tonight is how much Mrs. Cannon, the wife, one of our newlyweds, will sacrifice to keep her husband from doing a very embarrassing thing. Now, we'll give them a test. You'll find out what it is as it goes along. At a certain point, if she will save him from embarrassment at considerable sacrifice to her own self, we're going to give her a surprise gift that she doesn't know anything about. A beautiful tappan gas range for their new home. All right, boys, bring them out and watch what happens. Because, remember, this is just a test. They don't know what we're, what's, what's going on as yet. And our, our next couple is coming here now, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Cannon. Oh, hello. How do you do, George? Where are you from, George? Fairbanks, Alaska. Oh, the ice is broken up early this winter. What do, what, what, what do you do up there? I have the photo finishing concession at Ladd Air Force Base and photography. Uh-huh. And Mrs. Cannon? I work for the Ladd Air Force Base for controller's office. How long have you been married? 17 days, 23 hours, and 15 minutes. <laughs> I'd say that you're in your uh, late 30s. A little later than that, Art. Uh-huh. <laughs> what kept you? Why did you wait so long to get married, George? I had to find a good girl. How'd you find her? What was she doing when you found her? I called a friend of mine to ask her if she would like to go with me to officer's club at Candlelight and Wine. And she said that she was busy, but there was a nice gal that came in that she had known in Tokyo. She thought that she would like to go. Ah, and you uh, made a blind date with him? It's a good one, too. Yes. Well, now, uh, you're going to go back to Alaska? A week from tomorrow. Yes. I feel sentimental when I talk to newlyweds. 
I'd like to do something nice for you, Mrs. Cannon. How would you like a few nice additions to your wardrobe, for instance? Mm, I'd love that. All right. I'm going to make it easy for you. You're just going to answer a few simple questions and a little quiz. And for every correct answer you give me, I'll add something nice to your wardrobe. How does that sound? Well, thank you. That's wonderful. Uh-huh. Mr. Cannon, does this sound like a good deal to you? Sounds fine. Well, I'm glad you agree because the other part of the game goes this way. <laughs> Every time we add to her wardrobe, we subtract from yours. Oh, no. <laughs> How does that sound? Not so good. You may think you're back in Alaska here in a couple of minutes. Uh, you remember that, Mrs. Cannon? Well, I'll show you how it works out. For instance, uh, what's your address up there? 821 Northwood Building, Fairbanks, Alaska. That is absolutely right. And you have just won for yourself a pair of lovely lady shoes from Forever Yours. Well, thank you. Isn't that nice? Uh, oh, by the way, Mr. Cannon, the other half of the game, would you take your shoes off, please? <laughs> oh, get a load of those socks. All right, now that's the first part of the game. Now, uh... Mrs. Cannon, here's your next question. Do you know who was the second assistant secretary of the Navy? Mm, I don't know. That is correct. I asked you, do you know? You do not know. That is right. <laughs> For that, you get a lovely cashmere sweater. <laughs> well, Mr. Cannon, you don't have a cashmere sweater on, but you have a coat on. We're paralleling here, so we'll take his coat off. That's fine. <laughs> She's a pretty smart wife, huh? Yes, he is. Yeah. <laughs> now, Mrs. Cannon, for a new blouse, listen carefully. If Railroad A is 4,157 miles long and Railroad B is 2,237 miles long, which one is wider? Well, they're the same width. That is right. They are the same width. And you have just won a beautiful blouse. <laughs> We'd like to have your shirt, please, if you don't mind. <laughs> All right. Now we come to a very important question, Mrs. Cannon. Your next prize is a beautiful pair of slacks. <laughs> how, do you, how are you today, Mr. Cannon? Fine art. <laughs> what is the capital city of Illinois? Chicago. <laughs> You know something? Chicago is not the capital of Illinois. The capital of Illinois happened, does anybody know? Springfield. Springfield. Now, Mrs. Cannon, were you deliberately, did you know that? What, were we, what was going on? I don't know whether you're deliberately trying to avoid winning these new slacks or whether you're not. Well, I tell you, you've only been married 17 days. Your husband is standing here with his pants on at the moment. <laughs> but he will lose them here in front of a thousand people if you answer this question correctly. Also, you'll get a $60 dress for yourself. <laughs> now, think these two alternatives over. You got a $60 dress or a husband without pants. <laughs> Who was the first president of the United States? I don't know. Now, folks, just a minute. We don't want to make this too hard. I'm going to give you a hint. He was connected with a hatchet and a cherry tree. You don't want to say, all right? Do you have any ideas? Go ahead, honey. Say Washington. 
You want her to get the dress. You don't care about your pants. You let hers answer the question. You don't want to say? I don't know. Look at the dress. Look at the dress. Very beautiful dress. Feel it. She's looking over at her husband. There's a nice feel to it. Silky. What do you think? I don't remember. Up to her. Up to her. Mrs. Cannon, this was really a test to see whether or not you would, for a prize, let your husband be this embarrassed. Now, how about reversing the game now? Would you like to have some new clothes? I would, Art. No, we're going to save that for television. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm just kidding, and I'm not kidding about this, Mrs. Cannon, because you were a real nice, modest bride, and you did save your husband from embarrassment, even though he wanted you to have the dress, figuring he'd save himself 60 bucks. <laughs> we're going to give you a surprise prize, a beautiful Tappan gas range for your home with the exclusive Tappan oh, features. Isn't that wonderful. nice? wonderful. Good foods happen when you're cooking on a Tappan, whether you're in Alaska or in the Gulf of Mexico. And thanks for proving that people are funny. And before the days when you could edit, I would imagine you probably had a pretty good time clock in your head so you knew how long very good. each should last. Very, very good. There's nobody can direct or produce a show that's running like that except really the person who's doing it. He has to sense not only the time but how the show is going. And if you uh, cut it or uh, augment it by... Uh, things as the audience plays. You know, you're just playing against a wall like handball. When the audience reaction is great, you keep the thing going. And uh, everything that went wrong, you had to correct. There was no way of erasing it. If it was outrageous or unforgivable, you had to chide the person and correct him and apologize to the audience if he blurted out something wrong. Or you had to um, pretend that, uh, especially in radio, that something very good was happening when actually not too much might be happening. I've given people a reunion with a long-lost son or brother or father on the program, and they just said, well, yeah, fine. And they look at you rather stoically. Then you have to augment that a little, let people say the, the reunion is very touching. So you had to prepare for the unexpected. Yes, and television made it even worse because you saw what you saw and you couldn't fool anybody. In the fall, People Are Funny moved to NBC. It aired there until June 10, 1960. When the TV version ended on April 1, 1960, the network aired encores for another year, making People Are Funny the first TV game show to be rerun. Actually, sometimes it was a little bit difficult for us to uh, know where the separation came mm -hmm. between our own lives and our lives at home. Of course, we also had a great deal of problem not indulging in too much uh, togetherness, so to speak. Mm -hmm. 
taking each other for granted because it's a tough thing when you're with somebody in the daytime and the evening too. I remember one time we, I came home and Harriet said to me, do you realize that we're on the set that you're nice to everybody except me? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that the boys felt a little the same thing too. Mm -hmm. We leaned over backwards to try to give them as much freedom and, and as much liberty so they wouldn't be under the dominance of their parents you know, mm -hmm. during the rest of their lives. Because or, they were under the dominance of their parent during the time they were on their show, because you were the director of the show. Yes, they had in, to be, in didn't that they? essence. Yeah. And that's a very difficult thing, because as I mentioned in the, the book, <laughs> there's really no way, particularly when Dave and Rick got married, there's no way of directing your son and your daughter-in-law without being a little bit of an irritating force. Sure. You rarely hear anybody say that a director is a nice guy. They'll say, well, he's a so-and-so, but he's a good director. Under the sponsorship of Heinz Foods, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet moved to ABC's potent Friday night schedule on October 14, 1949. Ozzie Nelson had negotiated a 10-year non-cancelable contract. It also guaranteed him creative control. ABC had the option to bring the show to TV after 1951. Ozzie and Harriet were wary of the new medium. Universal Studios gave them the opportunity to make a film. And in 1952, the family starred in here come the Nelsons. Say, don't I know you from somewhere? Good morning. Don't tell me you finally decided to get up. You make a simple statement right away, Dave gets belligerent. The word is belligerent. Big man owns a dictionary. You and millions of other radio fans have wanted to see the Nelsons in all their hilarious glory. And here they are, the most listened to, the most laughed at, best loved family in radio. The film was a hit, and everyone was convinced the Nelsons could all make the transition from radio's airwaves to TV's small screen. The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet made its TV debut on Friday, October 3rd, 1952. It was a more of a difficult situation for us than if we had been playing characters. I know every once in a while we would have a dream sequence or something where we'd be able to put on a costume or a beard and it was so much easier to act under those circumstances yeah. because the hardest acting in the world is portraying yourself. Uh, Maya, of course, it was a reasonable character, reasonable extension. We were not fully conscious of this uh, specifically, but uh, we felt it as sort of a part of a burden that we were carrying. And as far as the scripts were concerned, we had to be careful, whereas the scripts had to be a reasonable exaggeration, nevertheless, they always did portray in a general form our thinking on certain things. Several people in a tour that I recently made promoting not only the book Book, but our new show, Ozzy's mm -hmm. Girls, they said, are you going to change your standards from the adventures of Ozzy and Harriet? And I said, well, I couldn't very well do that because it would be dishonest. Although the show never cracked radio's top 50 ratings during the 1940s, they did so in each of their final three seasons on ABC. The January 8th, 1954 episode was called Fifi La Plume. This is KECA, AM and FM Los Angeles, 790 on your dial, your ABC station for the Southland. Santa Fe, best wine by three important reasons why. Better taste, full bouquet, master blended Santa Fe. Santa Fe, just try it and you'll say, 
best wine bar is good old Santa Fe. All Santa Fe sweets now 63 cents, four-fifths quart at your dealer. Hi, everybody. This is Harriet Nelson. No, oh, uh, uh, pardon me, Harriet. Uh, do you mind if I say something first? No, go right ahead. Well, I was going to say, always look to Hot Point for the finest first. Uh, you, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, that's what I was going to say. Oh! Well, go ahead. You can say it, too. Oh, I don't think I will. Always look to Hot Point for the finest first. <laughs> Point Quality Appliances, pioneer and leader in all-electric kitchens and automatic home laundries, present America's favorite family comedy, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, transcribed and starring the entire Nelson family, Ozzie, Harriet, David, and Ricky. Nelson's asked what he considers to be mankind's greatest failing, invariably says, In my opinion, it's a lack of thoroughness. And Ozzie's right, for even he isn't thorough. If he were, he'd give credit to Theodore Roosevelt, who made the original observation. But anyway, armed with his stolen philosophy, he's blithely applied it to interior decoration, which happens to be the bone of contention in the Nelson household at this moment. I don't know why you want to have the chandelier taken out of the hallway here. Well, because it was never put up with any thought. The whole thing was done with... Uh, a lack of thoroughness. My exact words. Lifted from Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> Harriet, the chandelier should never have been put up in the middle of the hall. Well, where do people usually put up chandeliers? Well, there are several schools of thought on, on interior decorating. None of which you went to. <laughs> if I'd been here the day they hung that up... Well, why weren't you? Well, as I recall it, I was busy. You were playing golf. Well, but the thing wasn't out of my mind for a minute. I remember we were on the 18th green, and Herb Dunkel was two feet from the cup, and Jesse was about to putt. I said, I wonder where they're going to put up that chandelier. <laughs> well, that was nice. He missed the putt, and I won a dollar. So I, uh, <laughs> I rushed right home. At 8.30 in the evening. Well, I had to play another round to give him a chance to get even. Look, you know how I hate things that dangle from the ceiling. Well, if you're happy, I'm happy. Well, you don't sound happy. I'll try to laugh it up after I get used to that bare spot in the ceiling. No, <laughs> don't worry, you will. There just isn't enough light in the hall now. No, it's fine, except uh, over my desk by the stairs. Oh? Yeah. You have some plan for brightening up your little corner? Well, uh, I kind of thought... Uh, well, I bought one. One what? I bought a fixture that'll go right over my desk. How does it get over your desk? Well, it dangles... <laughs> I thought you didn't like things that dangle from the... Well, uh... how, how else could it be directly over my desk? See, the whole thing is on a long cord with a pulley, and you can move it up and down. You can put the light wherever you want it. I'd like it where it used to be. Oh, Harriet. 
Who's going to put the fixture up? Well, Mr. Jensen, the man who took the chandelier down. Are we going to have plaster all over the rug again? No, no. I'm going to put the desk in the middle of the hall and move the carpet back. See, I'm taking care of all the details. There'll be no lack of thoroughness here. Uh, Dave, can you come here a minute, please? I'm getting ready to pause my car. Ricky? I'm upstairs running my printing press. I need some help. Okay. Mom, Pop, aren't you? <laughs> you take that end and I'll take this. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Careful of the wallpaper. Yeah, let's put it down right here. Ozzy, you going to be home this afternoon? I want to take the car. Well, I've got to go downtown to pick up the fixture, but oh, I can take David's car. Well, in case nobody's home, will Mr. Jensen know where to put it up? Well, I'll be home in time. Anyway, I've taken care of that little detail, too. I left a note for him right on the desk. What you want, Pop? Oh, uh, will you roll the rug back, David? Sure. Hey, Pop, would you like to buy some business cards? Well, I'm not sure. You and that corny printing press. Roll up the rug, boy. <laughs> Here's a free sample, Pop. Oh, well, thank you. Don't put it in your pocket. Read it. I'm a ding-dong daddy looking for a red-hot mama. <laughs> oh, that's right up to the minute. Where'd you find that thing, Ricky? It was next to Pop's picture in his high school annual. Oh, well... <laughs> The, the editor was sort of a wise guy. <laughs> Here's a pretty popular one. I'm a devil, baby. Do you mind if I horn in? <laughs> Ricky, those aren't exactly business cards. They are if you mean business. <laughs> hey, Mom, when did you clean under this rug last? Just last week. Why? Well, I found this clipping. Oh, oh, uh, that's mine. For one exciting week only, Dawn Lafleur. Uh, let me have that, David. The girl who brings Paris to your hometown. Uh, let me have that, Ricky. The sensational Donald LaFleur in her Bally High bubble bath. Uh, let me have that, Harriet. <laughs> She's the kind of 3D you like, daring, delightful, deceptive... Uh, let me have that, David. <laughs> wow, pal, mmm, boy. Ricky. That's what it says here, doesn't it, Mom? Uh, let me have that, Harriet. Ozzie, didn't we go with the Randolphs to see Donald LaFleur last year? Uh, uh, did we? Uh, do, uh yes, uh, perhaps uh, we did. What does she do, Pa? Uh, well, it's, uh, nothing. It's, uh, uh, sort of an act. Uh, this lady sits in a bathtub full of bubbles. I'd like to see that. Well, uh, I, I don't think it's the kind of entertainment that I'd recommend for you. Why don't you and David go outside? Yeah, come on, Rick. Well, why does it say, mm, boy? Uh, Ricky, come on. Well, if I'm going down to get the fixture, I'd better get going. <laughs> What'd you cut this out of the paper for? Oh, just an impulse, I guess. <laughs> the same impulse that got you up on the stage last year to hold a towel for us? <laughs> well, Harriet, somebody had to hold it up for her so she could step out of the bathtub. She asked for a bald-headed man. Well, they were all there with their wives. I mean, you're so understanding, you know, and that uh, was all in the spirit of fun. Mmm, boy. Yeah. <laughs> After all, she was wearing a bathing suit. Why, Ozzy, you peeked. <laughs> well, I, I just happened to notice it out of the corner of my eye. 
Very appreciative, too. <laughs> Said I held the towel better than any volunteer she ever had. <laughs> uh, yes, sir. Uh, you know, Harriet, I think I ought to go down and say hello to her just for old time's sake. Don't you think so? Well, if you don't think I should, I won't bother. I didn't say anything. Well, I, it's the things you don't say I understand more clearly than the things you do say. Ozzy, you do whatever you want. Well, okay, I, I won't see her. I still don't understand why a lady would want to take a bath in the middle of a stage. It's show business. I get off the fender, I just waxed it. I see you finally got a radio for the old bucket of bolts, huh? Yeah, I picked it up in the junkyard. Why? Four sets of earphones, too. I'm going to take those out as soon as I can find a speaker. What's that wire sticking out of the dashboard? That's new. Well, that's just a thing. Leave it alone. What's it do? It blows the car up. <laughs> i got to try that, boy. How about that? My big brother's growing up. Go print up some more cards. Uh, Dave, can I borrow your car? Well, gee, Pop, I'm supposed to take Nancy Baker for a ride this afternoon. Well, I'll, I'll be right back. Be real careful of it, won't you, Pop? <laughs> hey, David, I've been driving a car for a long while. I think I'm pretty capable. much I don't know about automobiles after all these years. Bob, you gotta turn on the ignition first. <laughs> Just checking the battery. You better pull the choke out, Pop. Oh, oh, sure. <laughs> it's the other wire. Oh. Hey, that's a very neat horn, David. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, dear. honey. My car is out of gas. Uh, well, if I can be... Say, aren't you Dawn Lafleur? Uh-huh. Oh. <laughs> I'll bet you remember me, don't you? Well, I'm afraid you have the advantage of me. Oh, uh, well, uh, last year when you were here, you told me I was the best towel holder you ever had. <laughs> oh, you're a... Uh, Ozzie Nelson. Oh, of course. The one with the trembling hand. <laughs> oh, you do remember. Oh, sure, honey. How could I forget you? You were one of the few volunteers I ever had with hair. Oh. <laughs> well, hop in. I'll give you a lift downtown. Hmm. This is a real nervous car you've got here, Dad. Oh, well, this is my son's. I was just driving along listening to the radio. Don't you want to take off the earphones? Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, shall we go? Anytime. Oh, wait. <laughs> I always get that confused with the choke. 
Isn't it silly to run out of gas? I told him to fill it up at the garage. Well, it just proves what I always say. Most of our troubles can be traced directly to a lack of thoroughness. Oh, you're so right. Oh, I I'm not taking you out of your way, am I? No, no, no. I'm on my way down to the Emporium to pick up a light fixture for our hallway. Oh, well, I was going there, too. Oh, well, it's a, a small world, as they say, isn't it? <laughs> Just a second, I'll call him. David! That for me, Mom? For David, do you know where he is? No, I'm printing up some cards. Hey, how many ends are there in chicken inspectors? <laughs> David! Uh, yeah, Mom. Nancy Baker. Oh, thanks. Hi, Nancy. Oh, Mom, would you mind? Oh, sure. Oh, hi, Nancy. What? Who's a skunk? I know I promised, but I couldn't. Who saw me where? With who in my car? But I've been here all morning. Honest, I have. Mom! What's the matter? Nancy must be crazy or something. She says Vivian O'Connell saw me having lunch in a drive-in with that bubble bath girl. Well, that's ridiculous. Your father has the car, and he... <laughs> here, Dave, I'll talk to her. Get me off the hook, Mom. She thinks I'm a skunk. Hello, Nancy. Oh, you're wrong about David. He's been here all morning. It must have been some other skunk. <laughs> oh, that's all right, Nancy. But do you mind if David calls you back? I may be using the phone for the next hour or so. <laughs> The radio version of Ozzie and Harriet remained on the air until the end of this season. The TV series would turn Ricky into a teenage heartthrob. It helped springboard his music career in 1957. For more on the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 107. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? A gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow.
nearly every good comedian has good timing. They, they couldn't be good without it. Burns has great timing. Ed Wynn had the greatest. Gracie Allen had probably the greatest. She was the great of all time when it came to timing. You have to have real good timing or you can't exist as a comedian. Marilyn, why did you walk away from me? Why, why did you want to leave me? Because I can't trust myself with you. <laughs> what? You're so strong and I'm so weak. And when you look at me with those big blue eyes, I just, I just... I understand. <laughs> In the picture, all I wanted was money and diamonds. But now, for the first time, I realize that all I really want is you. Meryl. Dream on, Mr. Benny. Dream on. Marilyn. Marilyn, I'm mad about you. I'm mad about you, too, Jack. Jack. Yes. Jack. Will you do something wonderful for me? It would make me very happy. Well, of course, Marilyn. I'd do anything, anything for you. What, what is it? Well, in my next picture, there's going to be so many love scenes. I want you for my leading man. Oh, Marilyn, I'd, I'd love to be your leading man. Good. Now, if we can only get permission from Daryl Zanuck. Why? Who did Mr. Zanuck have in mind? Himself. <laughs> Blue night and you alone with me. My heart has never known such ecstasy. Although Jack Benny spent his TV time on September 13, 1953, dreaming of being with Marilyn Monroe. On January 15, 1954, she was officially taken off the market. That day, she married retired baseball star Joe DiMaggio at San Francisco's City Hall. They would divorce the following year, but remain close friends for the rest of her life. Jack had a basic philosophy, if I may divert here for a moment, that Certainly. as I analyze it, it was obvious that this was his philosophy. The bigger he could make the supporting people, that worked with him on the show, the bigger it made the Jack Benny show and the bigger it made Jack Benny. Now this is a leaf that I don't think any other comedian ever took out of Jack's book and it was so sound and successful that I'm surprised somebody else didn't pick it up too. But that was Jack. That was the generosity and the thoughtfulness and the great showmanship that are reflected in Jack's operation in all the years he was on the air. All my writers have been very, very good. I don't remember not having a good writer. But by the same token, the, the same writers have been awfully nice to me because they figure uh, not only am I easy to write for because of the characterizations, but that I'm a help to them because they think I may not be the greatest writer in the world, but they think I'm the greatest editor. 
and they think I know what to tell them. And I make as many mistakes as anybody else. Sometimes I'll tell them that I don't think this is right for the show, and it turns out great. And I apologize to I'd rather apologize and have a, and have a good show than have a lousy show and say I was right. My heart was a desert. Airing in his familiar Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern time slot, in 1954, Benny had a radio rating of 8.2, second highest on the air. For 20 years, his rating had never fallen out of the top 10, and 12 times he'd had a top three show. The January 10th episode celebrated announcer Don Wilson's 20th anniversary with the program. The Jack Benny Program, transcribed and presented by Lucky Strike. Lucky's taste better, cleaner, fresher, smoother. We were out for General Foods and Jello for 10 years, uh-huh. and Lucky Strike came after then. Lucky Strike sponsored Jack and the Benny Show for 15 years. They were the greatest longevity of any client on the show. General Foods being 10 years for Jello, mm-hmm. 15 years for Lucky Strike. It's amazing. You think back, Jack Benny had as his sponsor Jello for 10 years and uh, Lucky Strike for 15 years. And today, now here in the 1980s, you're lucky if you get a sponsor to pick up a 30-second commercial during a television special. That's right. No longevity at all. My, how times have changed. Yeah, really have. But you see, the sponsors took pride in the programming in those days. Now, there was always the hue and cry. I'll editorialize for a second here. Good. Always the hue and cry that once they got the network programming out of the hands of the sponsors... The audiences would have better programming. And eventually, through the 50s and the 60s, the programming moved away from the sponsors who really produced the shows through their advertising agency, or most of them. You got it. To the point where now the networks are producing the shows or paying for the shows to be produced, and the sponsors really don't have any interest in it other than the sheer numbers they're getting out, That's out right. there. Whereas in the old days, and you were there with the Jello and with the Lucky Strike things. I believe that the audience, in their response to the sponsor, fortified the sponsor and kept his interest in presenting that program. I think your analysis is very well taken. I don't think anybody can dispute it. program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Rochester, Dennis Day, Bob Crosby, and yours truly, Doc And now, ladies and gentlemen, in presenting the star of our show, it gives me great pleasure to bring you a man who... Just a minute, just a minute, Don. Hold it a minute. What? Don, today, instead of you introducing me, I'm going to introduce you. Me? Yes, Don. Ladies and gentlemen, today not only marks the anniversary of Don Wilson's 30th year in radio, but it also commemorates his 20th year with me. So, Don, take a bow. Oh, Jack, this is so touchy. Don, this day is yours. Today we will all pay homage to you. When I say we, I mean the entire cast. Your slightest wish will be our command. 
Whatever you... Don. Don, you're crying. Well, gee, I can't help it, Jack. See, the way those tears are running between your chins, it looks like you're irrigating something. <laughs> Stop sniffling. Well, uh, I'm all right now, Jack. I just couldn't help getting emotional when I realized that you've been with me for 20 years. No. No, no, Don. You've been with me. With me. To think that I came on this show when it was down, and because of... Down? My, and because of my personality and showmanship, I raised it to the pinnacle of success. Don, wait a minute. It wasn't minute. easy, and there were many setbacks, but every time the show was down, I brought it up again. Now, wait a minute, Don. My show was never down. So don't make things up. Well, now let's not argue, Jack. <laughs> really, let's don't argue because, well, and besides, I want to thank you for making this not only a memorable, but a profitable occasion. Profitable? What did Jack do for you, Don? Go ahead, Donzie. Tell Bob Crosby. Tell well, me. Bob, not only did I get $500 cash, but I also got a brand new DeSoto convertible for my wife, a trip to New York for the two of us on the Super Chief, and a whole week at the Waldorf Astoria. Jack, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, gosh, Jack gave you all of that? No, but it was his letter that got me on Strike It Rich. <laughs> You're darn right. Well, Jack, I guess it won't seem like much now, but, well, since today is Don's 20th anniversary with you, the boys in the band got something for him, and... Here it is, Don. Oh, gee, thanks, Bob. What is it, Don? What is it? Well, now, wait, Jack. I unwrap it. Okay. Boys in the orchestra, huh? Yeah. Oh, oh Jack, look at this. A diamond-studded cigarette lighter. Well, I'm glad that you like it, Don. My musicians went through a lot of trouble to get it for you. Well, Bob, that's a beautiful lighter your boys got for Don, but you'd think it would be wrapped a little better. Who did it? The owner of the store. The owner of the store. I could have wrapped it better than that. Not with your hands up over your head. <laughs> Bob, you mean the boys held up a jewelry store? Well, it was an accident, Jack. You see, when they walked into the store, Remley had his guitar under his coat. Uh -huh. The man thought it was a machine gun. He threw up his hands and said, take anything that you want. That's still dishonest. Frankie should have opened his coat and showed the jeweler that it wasn't a gun. Oh, Frankie did better than that. He took out the guitar, started to play, and the guy said, Look, you got what you want. Stop torturing me. <laughs> well, that, that I can understand. Anyway, Bob, it was very nice of your boys to bring down that present. Well, he deserves it, Jack. After all, he took this program when it was down, and he started... It to... wasn't down! <laughs> now, look, this show isn't five minutes old, and already I'm aggravated. That makes two of us. Oh, hello. <laughs> hello, Dennis. What's the matter with you? I got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning. So what? I fell out the window. <laughs> what? It's three stories. Boy, am I lucky I wasn't hurt. Oh, you landed on your head, huh? Was that it? Was that it, Dennis? No, on the mailman's head. Oh, fine. I guess he'll have to find himself a new job. A new job? Why? Yeah, now he's too short to reach the mailboxes. 
I don't know, Dennis. Everybody else just goes along. Why do these stupid things keep happening to you? Oh, I guess it's because I got such a bad start in life. You know, I was an incubator baby. An incubator baby? How much did you weigh? 11 pounds. <laughs> Dennis, if you were that big, why did they keep you in an incubator? They were afraid to let my mother get her hands on me. <laughs> Well, what did your father have to say? Nothing. He was hiding in there with me. <laughs> Dennis. Dennis, this is all very interesting, but why don't you just sing now and save the rest of your biography for This Is Your Life? I'd rather you got me on Strike It Rich. All right. I'll do it sometime. Just sing. Yes, sir. further evidence of the changing broadcast landscape. That season, Benny had a TV rating of 33.3. Jack Benny would air one more season of original radio shows. Most people ask the question, was Jack Benny as funny off the air as on? Jack was not that kind of a comedian. Jack was a great listener and appreciator of other comedians when they were on. And he would always stay in the background. He would always laugh and get a lot of enjoyment out of another comic's work. And great applause from Benny. But if Benny was in a crowd of comedians, he was eventually on. He could top everybody. But uh, He was just not in real life. A one-liner stand-up comedian like Burl or George Burns or somebody like that, you know. He was a real and thoroughbred professional from start to finish. He always demanded the very, very best that he could possibly get. And if there ever was to be an irreplaceable man, Jack Benny would unquestionably be that man. Eight days later, Benny appeared on suspense in a story called The Face is Familiar. 1954 was Autolite's final season sponsoring the program. Airing Mondays at 8 p.m., Suspense pulled a rating of 6. While it was a far cry from the listener heights of just five years earlier, it was tied for 7th overall. Autolite and its 98,000 dealers bring you Mr. Jack Benny in tonight's presentation of Suspense. Tonight, Autolite presents the story of a successful bank robbery, including the astounding history of the unhappy man who perpetrated the crime. It's called The Face is Familiar. Our star, in his first dramatic appearance of the season, Mr. Jack Benny. This is Harlow Wilcox speaking for the world-famous Autolite family. Tonight, we announce the $100,000 Autolite family charity drawing. 
During the next 11 weeks, all of you, 18 years of age or over, can take part in this greatest of all charitable events. And here's how. Just visit the showroom of any Autolite family car dealer and sign your name and address on the registration form he gives you. Ask him to sign the receipt portion. That's all. Nothing else to do. No need to buy a thing. And yet, you may be one of 25 selected to name the recognized charities that will receive a total of $100,000 in cash on the 1st of June. Think of it, thousands of dollars in cash to be given to your favorite recognized charity or charities if you are one of the favorite persons. So go tonight, go tomorrow, to Autolite Family Car Dealers and sign your name and address to the registration form he gives you. Later on, I'll tell you the names of the Autolite Family Car Dealers who are participating in this great Autolite Family charity event. And now, Autolite presents transcribed The Face is Familiar, starring Mr. Jack Benny, hoping once again to keep you in suspense. Gee, I still can't understand why they picked me, of all people. <laughs> Me, of all people. That's why it's so hard to believe. That it all happened, I mean. But it did. It really did. Just because I like to go to the railroad station. Walk around, look at the trains, study faces. I never forget a face. I never forget a train, either. But it's easier to forget a face. But a matter of fact, I, I remember some faces it would be a lot better for me to forget. Like Harry Edmonds' face, for instance. That's the day it all started. The day I saw Harry Edmond way across on the other side of the terminal. That's the station. He was talking to a big fellow. Harry's face I remembered right away. I never saw the big fellow before. Better get going, Harry. But you can't pull off the job. I stuck up a bank before. Yeah, sure, and they'd spot you the minute you walked in. I know you, too. This is your hometown. Oh, sure. Neither one of us is right. Let the boss decide. Come on. I thought about it on the train, down. We need somebody new. We're not splitting this take with anybody else. It goes three ways now. Look, if we have to, we have to. And if we wait too long, we got to let the whole thing go until next month. And we wait. Not from me. This town is too hot for me. Somebody is liable to recognize me. Yoo-hoo, Harry! Harry Edmund! Who's that? Where? Over there, some guy calling you. Harry, Harry Edmund, you old son of a gun. Brush this guy. Well, well. Good old Harry Edmund. You got me mixed up with somebody else, mister. No. No, I haven't. I, I know who you are. Yeah? Harry Edmund. You used to live on 12th Street and 2nd Avenue. What city? This city. Here. Don't you remember me, Harry? Can't say as I do, so... Harry! Oh, Harry Edmund! Harry! Hey, Harry. No kidding. You remember me, don't you? Seriously, Harry. You remember Pinky Smith? He had a ward on his finger. And Alan Davenport. He had a birthmark on his neck. Well, I'm Tom Jones. I have nothing. I'm clean. Brush him, get rid of him. No, 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 wait a minute. I think we got our answer. Uh. I think we got the engine paid to handle some of our bank business. 
Harry, Harry, try to remember. Go ahead, now. Try to remember. Yeah, uh, 12th Street and 2nd Avenue. That's huh? right. That's right. Well, I used to live around there somewhere, but I still can't... L- let me give you a hint. Go ahead. Remember Gordon's candy store on the corner? And remember the great bunch of guys who used to hang out there? Yeah. And remember those pesty kids who used to tag along, nagging, nagging, saying, let us in. Can we come too? Always pesty. Always trying to horn in. Well, one of them was me, Tom Jones. Remember me now, Harry? What'd you say your name was again? Jones. Tom Jones. The name sounds very familiar. We grew up together. Yeah, uh... Yeah, yeah. Well, well, uh, what are you doing these days? Oh, a little bit of everything. And you? A banking. Oh, money, eh? Yeah. Well, that's a nice feel. Well, I gotta go look at the people. It was good talking over old times with you, Harry. Hey, come on. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, look, uh, you, you mind waiting a minute? Uh, what's, what's your name again? Tom Jones. Remember? Oh, yeah, yeah, Tom yeah, well, w- wait a minute. Well, I'm kind of busy. Lots of appointments this afternoon. Oh, I'd like talking over old times with you, Tom. Maybe we could, we could have a drink and dinner. Well. On me. Oh. Oh, well. Yeah. Good, good. Except that Joe has an appointment here. Joe, couldn't you break it? Wait here a second. Uh, uh. Tom. Tom Joe. Tom, yeah. Joe, come here. Let me talk to you a second. What? Now I know I got the answer. I know I found the pigeon who's going to do it for us. Let the boss figure that out. I tell you, I got it figured. Look at that guy. Yeah? He is it. Him? He don't look like nothing. Right, he's nothing. Isn't that what we want? Nobody that anybody ever saw before. Nobody that anybody would ever think of looking at twice. Job's ready. And if we don't pull it this afternoon, we lose another whole month. So, come on. Oh, Joe can make it. He is going to join us. Joe, I forgot to introduce you. Have you met... Uh, uh... It's Jones, for heaven's sake. Yeah, yeah. Tom Jones. Tom Jones, yeah. Well, Tom, meet Joe, and don't get sore. He's a kid I grew up with, Joe. We're going to have a great time talking over old times, you know, Second Avenue. <laughs> That's right, and your name is Tom Jones. Yeah. Uh-huh. I must admit it, it is a difficult name to remember because it's so common. Don't you think so? Oh, yeah, I sure do. Well, it'll certainly be nice talking over old times. Oh, yeah, I haven't talked over old times in a long time. Well, well, Harry Edmund. Yes, sir, and good old, uh... uh Tom. Tom, yeah. Better get started. Where to? I want you to meet another old friend of mine. Harry must have been doing very well. Very well. I mean, for a man in the money game. He had a brand new sedan with real leather upholstery. I know it was real leather because that used to be my game. Leather upholstery. Not much money in it, at least not for me. But I didn't let Harry know that. No, sir. What if he ran into another old friend from 2nd Avenue and the other old friend said... How's old Tom Jones doing? And Harry said, not very well. 
Not very well at all. Well, that can hurt a man once it gets around. And then what happened? Well, when I came back to the main office, I said, I, I want 40% commission from now on. Really? But, of course, that would have made me a partner, the boss said. Uh-huh. After all, Harry, I'm not the kind of the guy who can be cooped up in an office. I've been a road man. The lure of the open road. Oh, yeah. The call of the open streets. See, I'm an outdoor type of salesman. Something of the pioneer kind, you know? Pioneer? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> pioneer, yeah. You see, there are those salesmen who are made for offices and those of us who get out and break the plane, so to speak. Tom, you surprise me. Oh, I could keep going for hours, Harry. Literally hours. Yeah, well, why don't you hold on to some of it till we have dinner? Oh, sure, sure. Hey, I'll bet you never expected that pesty little kid who always used to hang around to get so big in his field. Oh, I certainly didn't. We could show you somebody like you in our outfit, Tom. Really? Yeah. Well, now, that's very flattering, but uh, I'm not sure it's right for me. I'd have to... I bet I could uh, get you, I don't know, maybe uh, 10,000 a year to start with. 10,000 a year, you say? Yeah. Well... Sure like to think about it. Well, you talk to my boss. Maybe he can convince you. I'm willing to listen, Harry. I'm willing to listen, all right. The business Harry was in was mighty successful if the home of his boss was any indication. The beautiful big yellow house with a lovely green front door, and you could tell it was the home of a man who had worked his way up and knew what to do with what he had. Inside, it was very homey. Two fireplaces in the living room that looked like they were burning. A beautiful plaid carpet that must have been a real oriental, and they wanted me in the business. Me, Tom Jones, of all people. Brandy, Mr. Jones? No, thanks. Thanks. Spoiled my dinner. Cigar? Well... All clear Havana? Oh, I can see that. I can always tell a good cigar just by looking at it. I know cigars and faces and train. You're a very well-informed man, Mr. Jones. Well, you're kind of unusual yourself. Why? Well, you remember my name. Don't most people? <laughs> most people don't even recognize me. People I've known for years. Is that so? Now, don't get me wrong. It's an asset in my business. See, people who tell me no when I try to sell them something say, say come back next year. I come back next week, and they don't even remember I was in the first time. <laughs> Believe me, a face like mine doesn't come along every day. I like you, Tom. Uh, mind if I call you Tom? Certainly not, Mr... Uh, just call me boss. Everybody calls me that, especially people I like, and I like you. I like you, too, boss. Then uh, you're interested in uh, coming into the uh, organization? Oh, I might give it a whirl. Let's put it that way. I wouldn't want it any other way. A trial for both of us. And the, uh, the pay Harry mentioned? Oh, I, I told him a starting salary, boy. Now let's talk about that at dinner. Come on, we'd better get started. Isn't a quarter to three in the afternoon a little early for dinner? Uh, we uh, have a few errands to do. Uh, excuse us uh, just a minute? Oh, oh, of course, of course, sure. like the idea? Perfect. 
Nobody will ever remember him. I couldn't even describe to you what he looks like. Where's the satchel? Right here, boss. I thought you put the note inside. Well, we wanted you to okay it first. Here, read it. You are being covered by a gun from two different places in this bank. Do not send an alarm or you will be killed. Put $50,000 in the satchel. That's it. On the note. How will you get him to take it in? I always come up with the answer, don't I? Yeah, sure, boss. Come on, let's go. Oh, we talked it over, and the boss likes you a lot. Uh, uh, for the last time, it's Jones. Tom Jones. <laughs> yeah, well, I was only kidding, best. Tom. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> well, all right. Uh, we uh, better get started. Where to first? To the bank, Tom. <laughs> That's very kind, but completely unnecessary. I don't need my salary in advance. I told you, this is a high-class outfit. To the bank. Gee. Autolite is bringing you Mr. Jack Benny in The Face is Familiar, tonight's presentation in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. This is Harlow Wilcox again. Tonight, the worldwide Autolite family is privileged to salute a distinguished member, the DeSoto Division of Chrysler Corporation. The final Autolite suspense episode aired on June 7th. CBS refused to cancel the series. That fall, Anthony Ellis took over as producer-director. The show would continue to air, sustained by CBS, until the ad department found multiple sponsorship. And the program moved to Sunday afternoons in November of 1956. The secrets in the hemispherical design of the combustion chamber. That's where your fuel is exploded to give you power. This design squeezes every last drop of power out of your fuel. This most excellent canopy, the air. Look you, this brave o'erhanging firmament. This majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Why, it appears no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. So spoke William Shakespeare in the character of the immortal Hamlet. In another and more recent day, that lyrical phrase might have described the opinion of many citizens about the atmosphere in which they did their daily business. The Troubled Air, a report on smog. In the next transcribed hour, the KNX News Bureau proposes to review the current state of this community's efforts to come to grips with the situation which has become the concern of all who call Los Angeles a good and pleasant place to live. By the mid-1950s, smog was becoming a serious problem in American cities, especially Los Angeles. On January 15th, KNX broadcast a special called The Troubled Air. In recent months. Residents of Los Angeles suffered from burning eyes, runny noses, persistent cough and shortness of breath. It came from pollutants caused by automobiles, factories, and garbage incinerators. Any kind of action to speed the passing of our present high degree of air pollution. This documentary aired in an effort to drive awareness and speed up City Hall's solution to the problem. We don't like smog. 
Let's listen to the voices of some workers in the downtown area of Los Angeles, the area in which smog most often makes its presence felt. Our workers are not happy with the effect smog has upon their persons. Uh, we experience considerable eye irritation, throat irritation, and nose irritation, and also some nausea. I don't, uh, I don't feel nearly as uh, alert and spry as I used to. I believe that the hydrocarbons can go so far as to cause skin cancers and cause you untold damage to your lung system. Well, it makes my eyes tear, and I notice that my throat uh, feels uh, sore when the smog is very bad, and I get headaches from it. Well, it just seemed to irritate my eyes a little. The wife feels it much more. She works around this neighborhood. I've been feeling quite uncomfortable. Eyes, throat, and lungs. Uh, however, uh, it could be worse. I develop a similar headache to those that I would get if I were exposed to poisonous and wartime gases. Sometimes it causes the tears in the eyes and the nose. Five days later, the National Negro Network was formed by Chicago ad executive W. Leonard Evans. Evans was the first African-American radio network owner in the country. Other partners were Miss Reggie Schubel, VP and Treasurer, and John M. Wyatt, Executive VP. The duo owned the New York-based radio and TV consulting company. Among those on the board was Cab Calloway. The network launched with 46 affiliates. Broadcasting Magazine, reported that 12 to 15 million African-Americans were expected to be reached. In other news, on January 21st, the first nuclear-powered submarine, the USS Nautilus, was launched. Four days later, the Berlin Conference launched with ministers from the US, UK, France, and the Soviet Union. Its purpose was to discuss a settlement to the recent Korean War and the ongoing First Indochina War. The conference would last until February 18th. Time for the new Beulah show, starring Amanda Randolph as... Beulah, a gal who's in love with a man named Bill. He hasn't much jack, but I'm still his Jill. <laughs> yes, sir, it's the new Beulah show, brought to you transcribed from Hollywood. Love that man. <laughs> No crystal ball is necessary to get a load of your future tonight. Just stay on CBS Radio and you'll find out that two delightful and fascinating ladies... Amanda Randolph was born on September 2, 1896 in Louisville, Kentucky. Her father was a Methodist minister and her mother a teacher. But she would find her calling in music, vaudeville, and eventually radio. A star by 1948, she led her own musical TV program for the Dumont Network. It made her the first African-American woman with her own daytime TV show. Her sister Lillian was also a big radio performer, starring in both The Great Gildersleeve and Amos and Andy. In September 1953, Randolph took the title role of Beulah. It had been Hattie McDaniels until she got sick in 1951. For a time, Amanda and Lillian alternated the lead. This incarnation of the show aired on CBS weeknights at 7.15 p.m. 
And now on with the show. Yesterday, Beulah suggested that Oreo Winston's boyfriend, Loose Tooth, open a little restaurant. That's right. The only way Loose Tooth could keep from losing a job is to go in business for himself. Well, can he handle it all alone, Beulah? I doubt it. So my boyfriend is going to help him get started. Does Bill know anything about restaurants, Beulah? Does he? <laughs> well, he's known as the Duncan Hines of the Tums for the Tummy Set. <laughs> oh, excuse me, Mr. Jacobs. That's my knife and fork wizard now. It's Bill, baby, your clinging ivy in the garden of love. <laughs> well, come on in, Ivy, and cling to me. <laughs> Sweetheart, you're getting to the man who just put over a deal with Loose Tooth Harrison and the City Rapid Transit Lines. Oh, you mean it's all set, Bill? That's right, my little tub of temptation. <laughs> we just bought an old streetcar from the city, and we're going to... Turn it into a lunchroom. Hot dog. Meals on wheels. <laughs> yeah, but the deal cost a little more than Loose Tooth had, so I put up some of my money and we formed a little corporation. Bill, huh? your corporation was formed a long time ago. <laughs> oh, of course, honey. <laughs> if you really want to make sure we do a big business in the lunchroom, you can help us out. Oh, what could I do, Bill? Well, if you and Oreo could manage to get a few hours off each day, you could... Do the cooking first. Oh? Uh, do you think the Hennessons will let you take part-time off? I can ask them, Bill. But suppose they say no. Then Loose Tooth will have to do the cooking. And, baby, you know that old play called A Streetcar Named Desire? Yeah, I've heard of it. Well, I'll be stuck with a streetcar called Indigestion. <laughs> More tuna fish salad, Mr. Harry? Um, Mr. Harry, more salad for you, sir? Mm. Just put some on his plate, Beulah. You'll never get his attention when he's buried in his newspaper. Yes, Miss Alice. Harry, will you please put down that paper and join me for lunch? Hmm? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, uh, what were we talking about? Well, before you buried yourself in the comic page... We were discussing Donnie's future. Oh, yeah. And I do think that's more important than Little Orphan Annie's. Little Orphan Annie's? How old is that kid by now? About 86? <laughs> At least. At least, yeah. Now then, Alice, what about Donnie's future? That's what I'm asking you? Well, I think he should have one by all means. <laughs> Don't you really think we should talk with him and see what his ambitions are? I suppose we should. <laughs> Ambition certainly is a wonderful thing, all right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Would you folks mind if I had a little of it myself? <laughs> well, we should hope you have, do <laughs> Of course. Well, in that case, do you think we could make arrangements for me to have a couple of hours off each day? Oh? Uh -huh. If it's to further yourself, Beulah, I imagine we could. Oh, it's to further myself, all right, Miss Alice. I want to help Bill and Loose Tooth in the new lunch wagon. You mean they're going ahead with the plan? Yes, sir. And if Bill sees money in his future, then I can see a wedding in mine. <laughs> I'm sure we can work something out, Beulah. Well, bless your heart, Miss Alice. Oh, who's that now? I I'll go see Mr. Harris. Okay. Oh, hello, Beulah. Why, Mrs. Dawson, come in. Thank you, Beulah. Will you take my arm, please? Oh, 
The walk over here from my house across the street has just pooped my puny little body. <laughs> well, are you still sick, Mrs. Dawson? Oh, I'm always sick, Beulah. I'm just a long, quivering mass of aches and pains. Oh, oh. There goes a shooting pain up my back. Mm. Ain't got much to shoot at. <laughs> what was that, Beulah? Oh, I said there's nothing to hoot at. <laughs> Who is it, Beulah? It's Miss Dawson from across the street, ma'am. Yes, Mrs. Henderson, just little old me, with my undernourished body and overactive thyroid. <laughs> well, well, hello, Mrs. Dawson. How are you? Oh, quite ill, thank you. <laughs> so well. Oh, I'm so glad you noticed. Mm -hmm. I saw my doctor this morning, Mrs. Henderson, my specialist, that is, and he gave me some exciting news. Oh, what is it? He discovered my lumbago may be coming back. <laughs> oh? Either that or there's a strong possibility that I have gout. <laughs> well, that is exciting, isn't it? Yes, and I do so hope it's gout. I haven't had that yet. <laughs> Well, I'll be rooting for you, Miss Dawson. Thank you, Beulah. Oh, well, Mrs. Henderson, I hope you don't mind my barging in like this, but I was wondering if you could drive by little Linda to dancing school tomorrow. I don't expect I'll have the strength to do it myself. I don't mind at all. Oh, you're such a dear. Yes, it's pretty hair. Uh, Linda, Linda loves her dancing so much, and I'd hate to have her miss a class just... <laughs> because of me and my health. Well, don't worry. I'll take her. Oh, thank you so much, my dear. Well, I really must hobble home now and put on my elastic stockings. Well, are your legs bothering you too, Mrs. Dawson? Well, not yet, but there's no sense waiting until the last minute. Goodbye. <laughs> Eula would air until May 28, 1954. Mary, no! God, let like, go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. This is station KE2XCC, 
at Alpine, New Jersey. Our programs this evening are in honor of the builder and owner of this station, Professor Armstrong of Columbia University, who died on February 1, 1954. Back in July of 1935, head of RCA David Sarnoff asked friend and inventor Edwin Howard Armstrong to remove his experimental FM equipment from RCA's Empire State Building laboratory. RCA wanted to test its TV system. Armstrong saw FM as a revolutionary new communication service that would make AM obsolete. Sarnoff thought it an important advancement and wanted it to be TV's audio supplement, but he didn't see FM as a new core technology. Without the backing of Sarnoff, Armstrong decided to pursue FM development on his own. He got a license from the FCC and built a station in Alpine, New Jersey. In 1938, he began broadcasting classical music and other test frequencies. Armstrong broadcast from station to station over the length of the East Coast with virtually no signal deterioration. By the end of 1940, the FCC had received over 500 applications for FM licenses. Commercial FM broadcasting was authorized to begin on January 1, 1941. Armstrong struck patent licensing deals with all major radio manufacturers, except RCA. They agreed to pay Armstrong 2% of all earnings from the sale of FM receivers and related equipment. When RCA engineers soon countered with their own version of an FM system, Armstrong sued. Sarnoff, wanting to avoid litigation, offered Armstrong $1 million for a non-exclusionary license to use FM technology. Armstrong refused, insisting that RCA pay the same royalty as the other manufacturers. It led to the end of their close friendship. During World War II, construction restrictions limited the growth of FM. In the interest of national advancement, Armstrong turned over his patents to the government for the duration of the war. Although the Germans had the superior Panzer tanks, they were AM equipped. U.S. Sherman tanks were equipped with FM. The Germans' communication systems often jammed. As the war wound down, the FCC investigated spectrum allocation. It was feared that the lowest layers of the Earth's atmosphere could cause bad FM interference. Both Armstrong and other scientists felt this was baseless. Both RCA and AT&T spearheaded a campaign to shift the FM band to higher frequencies. It also required radio stations to lease equipment from the companies. On June 27, 1945, the FCC shifted the FM band. Today it operates between 88 and 108 megahertz. It made more than 50 FM radio station transmitters and 500,000 receivers obsolete. It nearly terminated FM radio broadcasting for more than a decade. The industry turned to TV and AM expansion. Unwilling to pay Armstrong the royalties he sought, RCA began developing FM circuits of its own. It also meant RCA owed Armstrong no royalties for the sale of their TV sets, which all used FM. 
RCA convinced other TV manufacturers to do the same. In 1948, Armstrong filed suit against RCA and NBC, accusing them of patent infringement and deliberately impairing his invention's value. Although he was confident the suit would be successful, the protracted legal maneuvering impaired his finances, especially after his primary patents expired in late 1950. That was RCA's strategy. As wealthy as Armstrong was, he lacked the capital of the giant corporation. He ran out of money in 1952 and relied on credit to pay his lawyers. Armstrong now wanted to settle. He asked for $3.4 million over a 10-year period. In December 1953, RCA offered him $200,000. Armstrong rejected the offer. The years of litigation had taken their toll. David Sarnoff, once his best friend, had become his most bitter enemy. In a fit of rage, in November of 1953, Armstrong hit his wife, Marion. She fled their New York City apartment. Bankrupt and ashamed by his actions, on the evening of January 31st, 1954, Armstrong wrote an apology note to his wife. He then opened a window on their 13th floor apartment and stepped out. The next morning, an employee found his body on the third floor balcony. He was 63. David Sarnoff openly claimed no responsibility for Armstrong's actions. For more information on Sarnoff and Armstrong, please tune into Breaking Walls, Episode 82. Now, Meet the Press, the prize-winning program produced by Lawrence Spivak. Ready for this spontaneous conference are four of America's top reporters. Please remember their questions do not necessarily reflect their point of view. It's their way of getting a story for you. Here now is the moderator of Meet the Press, Mr. Ned Brooks. Welcome once again to Meet the Press. Nearly two months have now passed since the Salk polio vaccine was pronounced a success. The inoculation program got off to a rapid start, but it soon found itself bogged down in a series of difficulties. The climax came about two and a half weeks ago when the distribution of the vaccine was suspended and a re-examination of the testing standards were ordered. We've now been assured that the program is getting back on the track. Next time on Breaking Walls, we move into February and discuss polio, falling ratings points, and radio profit margins. The reading material used in today's episode was The General, David Sarnoff and the Rise of the Communications Industry by Kenneth Bilby. On the Air by John Dunning. Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg. As well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine, Life Magazine, and Time Magazine. On the interview front, John Goodell, Phil Leslie, and Don Wilson spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at Speaking of Radio. Com. Norman McDonald and George Walsh spoke to John Hickman, the longtime host of WAMU's Recollections. Today, this program is heard each Sunday evening as the big broadcast. For more info, 
please go to WAMU.org. Art Linkletter spoke to John Gassman. Ozzie Nelson was with James Day. Jack Benny spoke for great radio comedians. And he and Don Wilson also spoke with Jack Carney. Selected music featured in today's episode was Auld Lang Syne by the Manhattan Strings, January Stars by George Winston, The Klezmer's Wedding by Andre Moisan, Love and Bloom by Bing Crosby, Seance on a Wet Afternoon by John Barry, and Dance Macabre by Camille Saint-Saëns. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, please go to PassDaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurback. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls Episode 124 will pick up our miniseries in February of 1954. This episode will be available beginning February 1st, 2022, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until February 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls Episode 123, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much, and Happy New Year.